So as you know, I am talking to you from the big island of Hawaii. And earlier today, somebody commented that they could hear some of the birds that live in the trees around my house. And I wondered during the last set that I led, there were roosters crowing across the street. So maybe you got my neighborhood roosters as well. But I live out in the country. I live in Volcano Village. And um, so I hope I can share a little of the beauty of this place with you, even as you're enjoying, those of you in California anyway, a nice rainy day. So here we are. It's the end of your first full day of retreat. And Bob often says at the end of the first day, congratulations. He kind of beat me to it yesterday when he said congratulations on just arriving. And he'll probably say congratulations whenever he gives his talk because he often does. And you've been sitting and walking and sitting and walking and doing some lovely yoga every now and then and probably finding out, as I usually do on retreat, that my body isn't quite used to that much sitting and walking. And, of course, you also find out just how incredibly restless the mind is. It's always astonishing to me that busy mind that goes scooting off here and there. I hope you all have a sense of sitting in a community. I think it grows on these Zoom retreats. You know, it's not the same as being physically present with each other. But still, you have the support of being here with all the other people. That's why we like you to come out from behind your screen. There actually is more of a sense of the gathered community. And, of course, uh, Bob and JD and, and Yasmina and I are all here to support you as well as the retreat staff. So it's not as easy as when we're physically together. That's what we had hoped, as you know. But um, it is what it is. And once again... I know when I got the call or the email, whatever it was, it said, well, it looks like a Zoom retreat. I thought, oh, you know, we are humbled one more time by this virus. And we find out one more time that we're not in charge. And we find out one more time that we have to let go. And as I was writing this a couple days ago, when I got to that word, I went, oh, yes. And I thought of one of my favorite passages from Jack Cornfield, And it's from the beginning of a book of his, which used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, but then they all died. So now it's called Living Dharma instead. And he says this, the entire teaching of Buddhism can be summed up in this way. Nothing is worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, let go and all suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine, self-existing nature and you will experience the freedom of the Buddha. 
The rest that follows in this book, and I would add in this retreat, are useful approaches and techniques for learning to let go. So that's the brief course. You know, maybe I could I could stop. You know, you, you've gotten just in those two words. In many ways, you have everything that you would need um, to bring yourself to some um, level of awakening. But <laughs> like all Dharma teachers, I enjoy giving talks, so I won't stop. So at some point, you made a decision to sign up for this retreat, and you have let go, I suspect, of your usual routine, the usual course of your days. And some of you may have even put yourself in a place, a separate cottage or um, place for you for the retreat where you are apart from your normal colleagues, family, friends. Some of you, of course, are uh, experimenting with doing a retreat even while needing to walk the dog and feed the children and all of those kinds of things. But I think it's important to say, and somebody actually used this word last night when we were doing our little popcorn one-word thing, the word refuge. And I always think about that at the beginning of retreats because it's such an important concept in our time that you come to this place of refuge, a place that's quieter, a place, perhaps, if you're lucky, with a little more time in nature, a place where you're um, some, having some kind of refuge from the endless cell phone, texting, news cycle thing that we all are caught in. Recently, at the beginning part of a trip that was supposed to include this retreat in Santa Cruz, I spent um, two weeks at, on retreat down in Big Sur at uh, the Camaldolese Hermitage down there. And the wonderful thing about that place is they have no cell phone reception and they provide no internet for their guests. Nothing. Not only did I let go of it, I couldn't have had it if I wanted it, which was great, you know, and it was so lovely not to be so connected all of the time. It was so deeply restful. I was quite astonished, actually. And nothing happened in my own personal world or in the world at large that made much difference in that two weeks of time. I also think, when I think about refuge, I think about here on this island, um, there used to be, in the times when it was inhabited, it was entirely a Polynesian culture, um, there were places of refuge. This is quite common, I think, in a lot of indigenous cultures. And so these were places on the uh, island um, that, where you could go if you were in some kind of trouble. And if you got there safely without being caught by whoever was out to get you, then you were safe. And the people who were there would help you sort out what to do next and how to stay safe. And um, so you could think of a retreat as being that kind of place. You know, it's a place where you've gone to have some sense of safety. You've gone where things are going to be simplified. 
you've gone where you have some sense of being protected. And of course, it's true that the Dharma is often said to be the best protector. So immersing yourself in that protection. So another thing as we start this retreat is that I'm really appreciating, as has been true, I guess it wasn't quite this late last year, but that this retreat comes at the darkest time of the year. And we are almost at the solstice, almost at the shortest day, just a couple of days after the retreat closes. And that's the point where there's the days are shortest, there's the least light, and it's the point where it actually turns again towards light. I was, um, during this last trip, I was on the East Coast for a while, and I had forgotten on the East Coast how short the days are this time of year. You know, by 4 o'clock it's getting dark, and it doesn't get light very early. And, of course, if you go further north, it's even more so. Lots of darkness. And I know that all of you who have come to this retreat have come with some hope that you'll see something. We do. It is, after all, an insight retreat. Vipassana is a practice of both purification and wisdom, so we expect some insight to come. And so there's some hope of a little bit of light in your own mind and heart and in your own practice. You know, we sit with some hope that maybe, you know, this retreat, there'll be some turning towards more awakening. And, you know, may it be so, may it be so. And um, I would say that mostly in my experience, it's not useful to get fixated on complete awakening. Uh, It's just not helpful. And, you know, you can grit your teeth and put yourself down on your cushion and sit all night if you'd like. Uh, It's not likely to do you much good. And that doesn't seem to be how, for most of us, how awakening comes. I'm remembering as I said this, say this, that Stephen Levine, uh, one of the very early Vipassana teachers, his first book was called A Gradual Awakening. So it comes very gradually, just like at the turning of the year, the light will begin to increase, but we won't notice it for several days, maybe a couple of weeks before you realize, oh, the sun's up a few minutes earlier, setting a few minutes later. And so we have to trust that in our practice, that each retreat builds on the previous retreat. And I'll add this in. I wasn't, hadn't planned on saying it. It seems like a good place to put it in. You know, it's true. Somebody, you know, sometimes we get feedback like, oh, you're going to give the same old talks again. You're going to to hear about the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances and the Seven Factors of Awakening. Again? And the answer is, well, yeah, probably a lot of the same ones. And my own experience, so I hope maybe it's yours too, is that when I hear these retreats, I often hear them, at a, I'm hearing from a different place. I'm a year or two or six or eight older, other things have happened in my life, and I begin to hear things 
that I didn't hear the first time around. <clears throat> and if you read, you know, sit down and read the Majjhima Nikaya sometime. I did that once. And it's not the only time I've read those suttas, but I read it straight through once just to kind of get a flavor. And you know, the Buddha had a shtick and he gave the same talk over and over and over and over again. It isn't that complicated. And it's very deep and very difficult. So both of those things are true. So, one of the things that I think is so important to say this at this early stage in the retreat is that you've put yourself into a kind of structure and you've kind of let go of the place where you get to control every moment of your life to decide what you're doing. And we so much have that, especially even, it's even more so now, I think, as we have these devices that keep us so in touch with everyone else and everything else that's going on in our lives. And that's not a very useful stance as you start a retreat. The more you can let go into the structure of the retreat, the more you will benefit. So, you know, if you haven't done it already, I strongly recommend that you turn off your devices and put your computer away. Well, you can't do that, can you? But you use it only for the Zoom thing. And, you know, that's the tricky part, right? Oh, I could could just peek at my email. I could just look at Google News and see what's going on. And to the extent that you have the willpower not to do it, I suggest you don't. You know, we so often say as we go on a retreat, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this retreat. You know? I'm going I'm to do the retreat at Spirit Rock or I'm going to do the retreat at IRC. And my suggestion is don't do the retreat. Let the retreat do you. Let the retreat hold you, point you in whatever direction you need to go in. Let the schedule be your schedule for the week. Follow the suggestions. And even if things don't particularly suit you, you don't like a particular talk or you don't like a particular practice or you don't want to do yoga right now, if you can give it over to it and let, again, the retreat do you, um, I think it will be helpful. You know, I was thinking, again, as I wrote this, for those of you who are in California, you know, the ground has been so parched and so dry. You know, there's been some rain this fall, but not a lot. And really, the suggestion is to be like that ground, be like the dry ground, and let the rain of the Dharma fall on you, wherever it does, and soak it up and see what happens. See what happens when the Dharma rain soaks into the parched earth of your heart and your mind. So, in this dark time, we're waiting in darkness, and we are in that window before the light actually begins to increase. So I want to talk a little bit more about that, about the act of waiting itself. So, we've had an enormous amount of darkness in these last couple of years. And, you know, so many people ill, thousands of deaths. As Bob said last night, we reached that point where it's 800,000 people in this country alone. And just 
a day or two ago, my husband came up and reminded me that there are 1,200 people a day now who are dying of COVID. Now, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. And one in every 100 elders has died of COVID. And for those of us who are in the elder camp, you know, that's sobering to think of that. And if you're not there yourself, you know, many of you have elder parents. So it touches this, this, this disease, this pandemic touches each one of us, family, friends, you know, people we know who are isolated in care facilities. And often we haven't been able to see people, you know, for months, a couple of years even. And I was so touched as I traveled. There were a couple of times at airports when people were greeting each other, and it was clear that it was the first time. It was so moving to see the excitement and the joy that they had at seeing each other. And for me, it was sad because my younger daughter and her husband came down with COVID just before that family reunion. And one more time, I couldn't see them. So they're okay, for those of you who might go, oh, are they okay? Yes, they're okay. They had breakthrough cases that were mild, and they're, they're good. But still, you know, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping I get to see them in January. But that's just it, isn't it? We all live with that, oh, I'm going to see, I'm going to go travel, I'm going to go someplace. And then there's always that dot, 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 maybe now, because we don't know for sure how it will play out. So recently, I came across this passage from Henri Nouwen on waiting, and he said, most of us consider waiting as something very passive, a hopeless state determined by events totally out of our hands. The bus is late. We cannot do anything about it. So we have to sit there and just wait. It's not difficult to understand the irritation people feel when somebody says, just wait. Words like that push us into passivity. But there is another way that you can look at this waiting thing. Those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know that what they're waiting for is growing from the ground on which they are standing. Right here is the secret for all of us about waiting. If we wait in the conviction that a seed has been planted and that something has already begun, it changes the way we wait. Active waiting implies being fully present to the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and that we want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, believing that this moment is the moment. So that's pretty interesting. So active waiting, fully present to the the moment, because what are we doing here, right? So we often, maybe usually, aren't so willing to be in the present moment. We want the damn bus to get here, right? Where is it? And we have all these stories about where the bus is. We want a better moment. We want an improved moment. This retreat isn't the retreat I ordered up. I want the better retreat that I'm going to get next time. You know, whatever. 
and um, we keep expecting that it's going to be improved and altered and have all the latest updates. And we got the moment that we're in right now. And now one says, this moment is the moment. So we struggle with this in our practice. We struggle with it a lot on retreats, you know. And we particularly, I think, struggle sometimes with the notion that we're supposed to be doing this retreat, we're supposed to be doing this practice in order to get somewhere. And that at some point, we are going to have the perfect sit. And when it isn't, you know, then there's always the hope that, well, maybe the next one will be the perfect sit. And we forget about the seed planting part. And that's what I think so much of practice is. And that's what you're doing this week. You are planting seeds. Maybe a row of seeds. Maybe a whole garden of seeds. But you are planting seeds of mindfulness, of metta, of learning to be in your body. And it's, I think, important to remember that this is what the whole teaching of karma is about, that there are reverberations to our actions. They will continue, maybe even long after us. A seed of mindfulness will lead to more mindfulness, maybe not immediately, but sooner or later. The seed will sprout if you give it a chance. My own experience about retreats, and I've been watching it actually since that last retreat a month ago, is that um, retreats reverberate for weeks, maybe even months or years sometimes, as the seeds grow and produce blossoms and fruit. But maybe you remember when you were little, or maybe you've had children or grandchildren who have done this recently, where there you are in kindergarten or first grade and you get your little paper cup and you put the soil in it and you get a seed and you tuck it in the little cup and you put some water on it and then you wait. And, of course, the temptation is to kind of poke at it, right? Maybe a few days later, where's my sprout? It's not coming up. And so you kind of try to look. And, of course, if you mess with it too much, it doesn't sprout. Same thing is true with like butterflies and moths. If you mess with the cocoon, let's help it out. It's not good. It has to follow its own time frame. And um, so we have to trust this darker time, you know, and so much. We don't want that. We don't want that time of waiting. We don't want the time of not knowing. We don't like seed planting. We want birth. We want light. We want glittery moments that are full of activity and change. And you're not getting that on this retreat, I don't think. You're getting darker, quieter moments, maybe even some sense of being underground, just like that seed. And we don't trust that. And sometimes, you know, in those dark moments, sometimes they're difficult. They're filled with pain or with grief and loss, and we still don't want it. But that moment is the moment. 
And what we know is when we stay with that, when we stay with the darkness that comes with our practice, even you know, as well as the joy, when we stay with it, it will blossom and it will grow fruit because each moment is a seed. Each moment is a planting. Each moment of mindfulness creates the karma for more mindfulness. Each moment of metta, even if you're doing it with your teeth gritted and you're not happy at all, it will still create the karma for more metta. So, seed planting is great. We've all done it. We've tucked little grains and little tiny seeds into the dirt. How could this little itty-bitty infinitesimal thing ever become a carrot? I don't believe it for a minute. But we do it, and we tend them carefully. Or sometimes we put baby plants in and equally carefully, but trouble often comes, right? Sometimes we get busy and we forget to pay attention to the garden. And sometimes the weather gets way dry the way it's been in California, and you're not allowed to water outside, and you're harvesting every drop you can to tend to your baby plants, but it's maybe not enough. And weeds come in, even under the best of circumstances. Maybe it's even worse when there's a lot of water and sun. The weeds love that. And so they come in. And I think useful to remember that in your garden of mindfulness that there are weeds. And, you know, they show up in your own practice. So you probably can tell where this is going. As we... You know, we, as those of us who plan retreats, we say, oh, okay, we better talk about challenges and obstacles. And everyone sort of rolls their eyes. You know, who wants to do one more talk about the hindrances and the obstacles? And who wants to listen to it? And it seems to be really a good idea, no matter how many you've heard or done. And I have to say, so I'm looking at, I think it's about 36 years of practice at this point. I don't think I've ever had it. I know I've never had a retreat that had no obstacles. I'm not even going to pretend that there might have been one. They all have obstacles. They all have hindrances. But what I can say, and probably this is true for a number of you as well, is that we learn to navigate a little bit better. And we learn how to encourage times when the mind is quieter and there are fewer hindrances about But I would also say, I don't think I've come to a time when it didn't help to be reminded that I'm not yet perfect and that I haven't come to a place where I am in control and that the classic obstacles might still be of some interest to me. I wish I could get to a place like that, but I'm not there yet. So there are five major forms of these obstacles. So you have desire and aversion. You have restlessness and what we call sloth and torpor, which is a name that I always love, but that's that place where you get really sleepy. And, of course, there's doubt. So there's an image that I have found hugely helpful when I ponder these hindrances, these obstacles in my own practice And that is the image, which comes from the Buddhist text, is when the mind is clear. And the mind is clear, it's like a clear, clear pool. And 
Um, I often think of lakes, like up in the high Sierras, where you're way in the back country and you come across one of those little ponds and it is so clear right down to the bottom. You can see every rock, every tiny plant. Maybe if you're lucky, there's a couple of little fishes swimming around. And so that is an image of what a clear mind might be. That clear, at least some of the time. But even if you have it some of the time, things happen. So maybe desire comes. And desire is like you take one of those clear, small ponds and you dump in a bucket of dye. And, or maybe two or three buckets of dye, and it colors everything. You can't see anything except that color. And desire is so like that. If you think about, I know, I know for me, it's that itchy place that comes with one click buying on Amazon. You know, you see something, you think you want it, you go, no, 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 I don't need that, not yet that it's only one click away, right? And then you lean and your finger kind of strays over to the button. And no, 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 no. And it's very hard to see anything except your desire. We see, it's like a contact lens of desire that we see through. With aversion, it's a little different. Aversion is like there's some kind of volcanic activity, which is probably a good image, going on underneath the pond. And all these bubbles come up. Those of you have been up to Lassen, you've seen some of the pools up there that bubble and bubble and bubble and fume. And because there's so much activity in the water, you can't see clearly either. And so when the mind is filled with aversion, with anger and fear and that kind of thing, we're not seeing clearly. And sloth and torpor, oops, I skipped restlessness, sorry. So we get restless. And so when restlessness happens, it's like the wind blows across the surface. And again, if you've been by a body of water, when there's a lot of wind, you can't see beneath the surface. It's too choppy. The wind makes too many waves. And we're kind of trapped above the surface and not able to penetrate the mind or the heart. And with sloth and torpor, of course, it's quite the opposite. It's that place that's sleepy and sticky. And it's like pond algae and scum. You know, and the water gets thick and gooey. And you just can't see anything except for the stickiness. And then, of course, with doubt, it's like the pond dries up. It becomes mud. And there's not seeing anything at all. And this isn't, I really think it's important to say it's not, it's the kind of doubt that really questions what you're doing. Like, is this really useful? Why am I doing this practice? And um, so it makes it hard to see anything. But you're all good gardeners, right? I suspect. And um, all is not lost. And you spot the weeds, or maybe we help you spot them. That happens once in a while. Um, and that's actually a hugely important step, is that place where you see them. And, you know, I would say that in my own practice, I find that to be true, that when 
I know that I'm filled with desire or filled with aversion. Then there's more space to make some kind of a wise decision, which might mean to take myself out of the situation, close the door, do something different, you know, go for a walk, read a book, just something that puts me into a separate uh, space. And so where I can stand back and observe and maybe think about before I act. Bob talked a little bit, I think it was this morning, about clear comprehension, that place where we begin to know what to do. So it's the great gift, actually, of having hindrance attacks while you're on retreat. So it's not a problem. It's a gift, you know, because you're sitting. You're here on retreat. You're not acting so much. You're not doing so much. And, you know, you're doing your best to be in the moment. And it's a chance to really observe what happens in the heart and the mind. Wow. Desire is like this. Huh. I can feel it all the way down to my toes, you know, or maybe you can get a sense of the kind of imagery that comes with it or the kind of leaning out to the next thing that comes with it. Or anger is like this. And even if you're so angry, you think you're going to go up in flames. That's okay. You're just sitting, right? You're not really going to go up in flames. And you're not doing anything to anybody. And you get to see Whoa, I had no idea my anger was that intense or that strong. Restlessness feels this way in the mind and the body, which is not a very pleasant uh, sensation, or sleepiness. Or I have, I've often said, I, I think there's an interesting state that happens, especially early in a retreat, when you're just settling in, that is a mix of restlessness and sleepiness. And maybe they're kind of twined together like the DNA um, molecule, but still, it does feel like they're both, and it's not a very pleasant sensation at all. And you begin to realize that there's doubt. You know, oh, there is a place where I really question the good of this. And it's useful to know that there is that part in the heart and the mind. So there are practices that counter these things. You know, you can reflect on impermanence if you're concerned with desire or do metta if you're dealing with anger and or you can really work with concentration, which is sort of counterintuitive but helps a lot with restlessness. And, you know, here and there as the retreat goes on, we'll probably give you assorted recommendations for what to do to help wake up. And, of course, with doubt, That's what we're here for, you know. It would be fine if one of you came to one of us and said, you know, I'm not so sure. And we can talk about it. And that's what teachers and Dharma friends are really for, is to help us in those times. But the bottom line is, you can expect weeds. You can expect hindrances. You will have them. Everyone All these faces that you're looking at on your screen, we all have them. And being mindful of them is actually the best remedy. So, this garden, this practice garden continues and grows. So, there's a poet who wrote a long time ago about a farming community during a difficult time. 
And they said, they go out, they go out full of tears, carrying seed for the sowing. So whatever's happening at this sowing time, it's a time of tears, of grieving, of sorrow, maybe like what we're in right now. But the seeds get planted anyway. But the poet goes on to say, later, of course, they come back, they come back full of song, carrying their sheaves. So I love those those lines, you know, going out with sorrow and then coming back after a while with some harvest. And it doesn't, the poem doesn't mention, you know, that long period of time. It might be weeks or months or a season, a time when the seeds rest in the dark earth. But eventually there comes that moment when things sprout and there is a harvest. You all know how this works. You all do. Every person in this square circle of ours, as Bob says, knows how this works. We all have known times of loss and confusion and grief when it's all we can do to put one foot in front of the other. And each one of us has been surprised when at some point there's some harvest of that time. When we see that we are bigger and more mature and have more heart and are wiser. So these days... I repeatedly come up from my own being for the need to trust. To trust that there will be that moment when the tiny leaves poke up their heads. And what is true, like I left something out. Did I leave something out? I did. To trust the process. So what, what is what I'm struggling with is the process of waking up and to know that it includes times of darkness and not knowing. And we have to trust waiting and not being able to rest even, you know, in our waiting and to trust the not knowing and to trust that seeds do sprout. So Rilke says, wonderful quote that shows up at a lot of retreats. He says, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves. So this would be like loving the seeds themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions Now, perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And that's it, isn't it? You know, the answer doesn't usually come all at once. Kaboom. Not very often. It's much more like the increasing of the light that will happen in another week. Very, very gradually. It's like that moment, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when I got ahead of myself where the leaves just kind of poke their heads up above the ground. And then there comes that moment when you go, oh, it's a little different in here. It's changed. I've changed. Maybe we've grown or maybe we've moved out of that time of confusion or we're just not quite so caught in the grief that we've been in. And we indeed live on into the answer. So this week, I invite you, we all invite you to practice as deeply and as sincerely as you can, to rest with whatever not knowing,
comes your way, to explore the obstacles as they arise, using them to learn more about your own heart and mind. We're really inviting you to trust the planting that you are now doing. So let's just breathe together for a moment, and then I'll ring the bell for the end of the talk. So don't, you don't have to move. Please don't move. Just sit any way you are. It's good to learn how to do that. Take a couple of breaths. Perhaps as we're sitting to revisit that intention that you brought yesterday, knowing that that's at least one of the seeds that you are planting with this week of practice. May all beings come to awakening. So thank you very much for listening, for your practice. And I think it's time for some walking. Uh, Enjoy. Enjoy.